one of the most important things that I've learned in my very wonderful and blessed career is humanizing and plain English. Have you ever noticed that some of the best ideas come from unexpected places? Your next breakthrough may come from a leader facing similar challenges, but in a completely different sector. Welcome to Chief Influencer. I'm your host, Anthony Shop. Join us as we explore how today's successful leaders inspire, influence, and connect with others. Chief Influencer is a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board, who have teamed up to spotlight how great leaders and communicators are making their impact in the world. This episode is brought to you by the George Washington University's College of Professional Studies, with in-person and online programs, ranging from master's degrees in public relations strategy to certificate programs in digital communications. GW offers more than just the credentials to help working professionals get ahead. It prepares them to be leaders in their field. As a proud GW graduate myself, I can attest that faculty members combine academic rigor with real-world lessons that can't always be found in textbooks. Check out cps.gwu.edu for more information. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Chief Influencer. My name is Robert Kruger. I am a director with the Communications Board, and I am guest hosting this week in place of Anthony Shop. Uh, this week, we have Christopher Ullman on the podcast. Chris is a communications professional, author, inspirational speaker, mentor, and champion whistler. He is president and founder of Ullman Communications, which is a strategic advisory firm uh, and previously served as director of global communications for the Carlaw Group. Chris also led communications at the White House Budget Office. He ran public affairs uh, at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, and was spokesman for the U.S. House Budget. In addition to that, Chris is the author of two books. The first one, Find Your Whistle, Simple Gifts, Touch Hearts and Change Lives, as well as the book, Four Billionaires in a Parking Attendant, Success Strategies of the Wealthy, Powerful, and Just Plain Wise. And we will talk a little bit about his new book today, uh, Four Billionaires in a Parking Attendant, a little bit later in the podcast. But first of all, I want to welcome Chris to the podcast and say congratulations on being named a Chief Influencer. Robert, thank you so much for having me. It, it's quite an honor, and uh, I've been a communicator now for almost 37 years, so uh, I'm just really honored to uh, have this designation. Thank you. It's it's great to have you, and we're very very excited to uh, to have you join us. Uh, I, I just want to jump right into uh, right into your background because you have been you've been in DC for 30 years, 30, uh, almost 30, 30 almost years, 37 right? years. Almost 37 oh, th years. Almost 40. <laughs> almost yeah. <laughs> I, I got uh, a lot and, of gray hair to show for it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and, and what I find exciting about having you on the podcast, I, I'm a communications professional by by trade. And uh, a lot of the chief influencers we have on the podcast, they come from a variety of backgrounds and different professions. And so, like I said, I, you are a professional communicator. And here in DC, I'm based in DC. So I'm very excited to talk to you today. And so, um, but I want to start off really with just give everyone a little bit of background of who you are. How did you end up in D.C.? And, and how did you get into communications? Well, I did an internship for then Representative Chuck Schumer, who's now the Senate Majority Leader back in, this is scary, 1984. 
Uh, so I went to Binghamton University in upstate New York, and I'm, I'm from Long Island, New York. And I, and I was majoring in political science, but I had this chance to come to Washington, do an internship, fell in love with the city, and then went back, graduated. Um, then I, I was a ski bum for a while uh, out in, out in uh, Idaho and Wyoming, but then came to Washington in 1987. Uh, and that's where I landed a job at a small public relations firm and did that for four years. But that set me on this kind of pathway because majoring in political science, uh, there was no communications degree at Binghamton, at least not at that time. So I could have done a lot of different things with that degree. But since my first job was in public relations and I really liked it, I said, well, I'm going to stick with this and see how it goes. And that just led from one job to another to another. Uh, eventually, you know, jobs in politics and government, then uh, Carlisle Group. And now I have my own little PR firm for the past five years or so. That's great. So like, it's so I think one of the hallmarks of communications and what really sets apart good communicators from maybe not so good communicators is, uh, is what I call an audience centric approach to communications. And so knowing what, what audience, what constituency you're speaking to, um, and how to frame your message for that audience is really critical. And so I think that I wanted to ask you just because you have this really you know, extensive background in the private sector, work for government. What's the biggest difference you've seen in the different audiences that you've communicated with over the past 40 years? You know, there overall, I say there's an immense amount of similarity, uh, but there are some differences. When you work in the public sector, so I worked on the, the House Budget Committee for John Kasich, then I was spokesman for the Securities and Exchange Commission for Arthur Levitt, and then worked in the, the Bush White House. This is George W. Bush as the OMB budget spokesman. And I think when you have jobs where you actually have to hold up your hand and, and pledge to uphold the constitution of our, of our government, you know, there's a certain bar of credibility and honesty that you pledge to meet. So there's, there's that. And, and then the audiences that you're ultimately trying to reach is the public. Like the, when, when you work in the government, you work for the citizens and the taxpayers. So you are accountable to them. And I, I took that mandate quite seriously. Like, for example, when I started working at the Securities and Exchange Commission, the, you know, there was this mentality of if a journalist or the public asked for information, the bias was, no, we're not going to give it to them unless we can come up with, like, unless we have to. And I said, no, it should be exact opposite. It should be, we are accountable to the public. Let's give them what they want, unless there's a good reason not to. So those kind of mindsets, I think, is really, really important. Now, even in those jobs, we had to communicate with different audiences. It was uh, through journalists. Obviously, that's a, like an intermediator that you've got to go through oftentimes to get to the public. And we had members of Congress and, uh, and others in the executive branch that we had to communicate. And there were uh, NGOs or unions and uh, advocacy groups. So there are a lot of those players. You know, then in the private sector, you know, a, lot of t a lot of it has to do with who are your immediate constituents. So the Carlisle Group, which is a, a global private equity firm, and I, I worked they are for 18 years running the global communications team. You know, our primary 
uh, kind of audience was our investors. These are wealthy individuals and pension funds and alike all around the world. And it was really our duty to make sure they knew what we were doing day in and day out. And so that was our primary audience. But of course, there were a number of audiences, government officials and the media and entrepreneurs and the public too, because as private equity in the past 20, 25 years has really risen to prominence, they have more money, they are doing bigger deals, and they're doing name brand deals. So if you're a private equity firm like Carlisle or Blackstone, and you are buying name brand companies like Hertz Rent-A-Car, for example, and Carlisle used to own that, you know, everyday people are drive those cars. And so you have to care about them as an audience as well. So, so overall, there are, are, are these core audiences, the public, the media, the government, NGOs and the like, but it, there are slight differences depending on if you work in the government or if you work in the private sector. That's fascinating. So, and, and like I say, like I said, like it's it's always been something that we know, but I think that we, uh, for those of us who've never kind of bounced around um, or, you know, like went from private sector into government, maybe vice versa, and then back to the private sector, we don't really get that, understand how, how that works. Um, so I, I want to quick tra uh, transition really uh, for a second, um, just to for the to the topic of whistling, of whistling. And so I think it'd be strange <laughs> if I didn't bring this up because uh, in, in researching uh, uh, you for this for this episode, you know, obviously there's a lot extensive. There's a ton of online information and stories about the great work you do in communications. But there's also probably equal amount of stories about your unique talent, uh, Wesley. And so I, I wanted to really quickly give you a little, uh, have you tell us about this, uh, this great talent of yours, how it, how it came about um, and, and, and really the, the fascination with uh, everyone, because it, like I said, it's really become a, um, almost synonymous with your identity in a way, right? Yeah. You know, I, it's funny. I, I, when people say, Hey, if I Google you, what will I find? And I say, Oh, you'll find a lot of stuff about whistling. And they're like whistling. <laughs> And that's, that's like the introduction to me. And one of the cool things about uh, whistling is that it's something that I've been able to do uh, since I was five years old and I, I just turned 60. So for 55 years, I've been whistling. And of course, I, I've taken it to you know a rather high level of proficiency. I've won the international championship four times and uh, whistled with symphony orchestras. And I have a gig coming up with the, the Alexandria Symphony uh, this coming holiday season. And I know you're uh, in this neck of the woods. You should come and check it out. It's going to be a lot of fun. And so what's been neat about the whistling is that it, it has been this kind of overlay through my pretty much my whole career, right? So I have my jobs because you don't make a lot of money whistling. And but then the whistling is resides right over it. And I have just tons of stories and the book you referenced uh, find your whistle uh, is about all those whistling experiences, kind of whistling at the intersection of Wall Street and politics. So I have all these great stories of you know whistling for the president in the Oval Office, whistling uh, at the U.S. Capitol in front of sixty-five thousand people. I even whistle at the top of the Washington Monument on the outside because there was scaffolding 
on it, 555 feet in the air. And, you know, I just, these fun stories. So uh, Dave Rubenstein, who's a, a billionaire philanthropist, his office was down the, the hall from me at the Carlisle Group. And he calls me up one day and he says, come to my office. So I, I walk down the hall and there's Ted Leonsis. Now, Ted Leonsis is the owner of the Wizards and um, the, the Caps uh, hockey team. And he and, and Dave says, whistle for Ted. Like just no warm up, no nothing. So I whistle for Ted. Ted says, wow, that's great. Uh, do you want to whistle the national anthem at a Wizards game? And I said, wow, that'd be great. So I've, I've whistled at a whole bunch of major league games, the Nationals, the Wizards, uh, the Cincinnati Reds, Texas Rangers. It's and, it, and so I just have all these kind of fun stories. And then uh, the reason I wrote that book was because uh, I had a chance to do a TED talk uh, on the whistling, and I had to figure out what's the point. And the the you know yes, I can whistle well, but who cares? And but what I concluded was that everyone has a simple gift in life. Mine mine happens to be whistling, but you have a gift. Your listeners, everyone has a gift. And my mantra is: uh, don't think big. Actually, think small. Worry about the person next to you. And this notion of, oh, I'm going to go change the world, uh, you know, that's, it's, it's actually rather quixotic. The, the odds of me being able to change the world are like microscopic, but the, uh, the odds of me being able to use my gift to touch your heart or change your life in some small way is actually pretty real. And so while I think if someone is capable of changing the world, I'm not going to tell them not to, as long as it's a good change. But for most people, we, everyone has this opportunity to use their gift to affect the person right, literally right next to them. It could be a barista, it could be a colleague, uh, it, it could be a teacher. So, um, so I've, I've just had this fascinating experience. I never could have predicted that this whistling would have exposed me to all these interesting people and experiences. And uh, I am truly blessed by it. And and, and feel a duty to give back. I, for example, I whistle happy birthday more than 600 times a year for people. And that is, it's like a, a whistling ministry. And it makes me very happy uh, because I'm able to celebrate someone else. You know, I, too often humans are fixated on themselves. And I think it's good to just flip it. Say, I'm going to worry about other people and worry a little less about myself. So the whistling helps me do that. That's, fa that's fascinating. Like, and you, you mentioned happy birthday a, a second ago. Like, it's, I'm, I'm just curious, what are like the top three <laughs> tunes, uh, songs that you get asked to, to whistle uh, when, uh, throughout the year or on average? I'm just curious. Uh, you know, it depends uh, on the audience. So uh, the, the very famous uh, in the Andy Griffith theme song, which was the, the theme song for a TV show from, I think, the 60s. So that has a, a is a whistled song. So there's that uh, happy birthday, of course, and uh, and they're they're like sitting on the dock of the bay. Yeah, so people uh, will gravitate towards what they know, and and I'm happy to accommodate. But th then I say, hey, listen, uh, I can do Beethoven's Fifth Symphony if you want. And they're like, wow, that's cool. Let's hear that, uh, or let's do some jazz, uh, like a Glenn Miller tune or Duke Ellington song. Or show tunes. I love doing show tunes from Guys and Dolls or Fiddler on the Roof, and and you know it makes people happy. And we need more happiness in the world. 
That's great. I, I love that. And so, uh, how it brings happiness and, and, and also what, uh, how you mentioned a second ago, finding that gift, sharing it with others. And I think whenever I get asked to, you know, consult other communications professionals or just those, uh, those individuals maybe starting off in, in, in the workforce, I always say, find that gift, find out what you're good at and lean into that. And so whether that's, you know, you know, like whatever the talent is, whatever the skill is. And so this is a great example of that, which is why I love that, love the stories. Uh, and I, and during our, uh, what I talked to you a week ago, you, you were sharing other stories as well, which is fantastic, but we don't have time to go get into all those right now. But, uh, mm-hmm. um, because I do want to, want to get to the heart of this podcast. So I'm going to talk about influence. And so that is, uh, so chief of influencer is an initiative between the communications board and social driver, where we recognize um, those individuals who've been very successful with influencing and, motiv- and motivating uh, the people around us. And so I wanted to, uh, and we shine a spotlight on that, you know, through this podcast. And so, um, but I want to just add, kick it off really just a very general, a general question, because um, you are a communications professional. So I think that by um, like our jobs, I think it, is by definition we have to communicate, have to persuade, have to motivate individuals to. Uh, uh, and so, how have you gone about that in general throughout your career? Whether it's communications or it's just your, your general interactions with people on Capitol Hill or clients. You know, I think one of the most important things that I've learned in you know, my very wonderful and blessed career is is humanizing and and plain English. So those are a couple of things that uh, have, have been like really important. I mean, because when you are trying to uh, convey information to people, if you don't speak in plain English, they're really going to have no idea what you're talking about because people are busy. Journalists are busy and citizens are busy and regulators and everyone's got a lot going on. So clarity of thought and clarity of language is just super important. And when I worked for Arthur Levitt at the, at the SEC, he had a rather substantial plain English initiative to take the prospectuses of mutual funds and actually have them written in ways that normal humans could understand and kind of break through the, the gobbledygook that they were so used to. So that plain English is just super important. And uh, when I uh, meet with a client and they say, I say, well, tell me, just give me your ele- elevator pitch. And they'll, they'll say, blah, 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 blah. And I'll say, I actually have no idea what you just said. And many communicators are, uh, you know, a, a mile wide and an inch deep. That doesn't mean we're not good humans. It just means that we tend to be kind of jack of all trade. And, uh, so I need plain English. So I've actually gotten very good at kind of deciphering what the client actually does, turning it into plain English, helping them speak in plain English so that they can better communicate with their employees and with their clients and their, their regulators and all that. So that, but plain English is super important. And then yet this other thing about just humanizing, you know, in private equity, you know, when your bosses are billionaires and own private jets, uh, there is uh, that's kind of a, a handicap in a way, meaning that a lot of people like say, well, you're rich, 
and we're not going to give you the benefit of the doubt. We're not going to listen to you. You're selfish or whatever. So we spent a lot of time just trying to humanize the, the founders of Carlisle, the, the actual uh, investing. What is private equity in the way you, you take it from geeky numbers and turn it into like flesh and blood is by featuring kind of the, the everyday people who do the investing or the companies that you actually buy and how you make them better and what is the actual impact on, on individuals. And I, this humanizing thing, I think, is so important. One time, um, Bill Conway, who's one of the founders of Carlisle, he's a, a billionaire philanthropist also, he gave $5 million to a, and you've probably heard of it, it's called Some, So Others Might Eat. It's a shelter that helps people in need here in Washington. And he said, well, they're going to announce that and just help them write a press release. So I, I called up their PR people at this nonprofit and I said, what are you going to do? And they said, well, we're putting out a press release tomorrow. And, and I said, well, you know, rich guy writes $5 million check. Like most people just really don't care. I said, why don't we focus instead on the giver and focus on the receiver and humanize this gift? And like who, let's find some people who will actually benefit from the gift. And it took a little convincing, but they agreed. I then connected them with the Washington Post. Two months go by, Christmas Day, top of the fold, front page story on that gift. Now, it wasn't focused. It, the headline was not billionaire gives money. It was family has home. So humanizing has been like such an important theme in the communications I've done. And if it was just billionaire writes $5 million check, they would have written this, written this little squib in the Metro section. But since we are focused on actual humans there, it's much more compelling story. You know, when John Kasich was the budget committee chairman, he went on to be governor of Ohio and then ran for president. But when he was on Capitol Hill, he was an expert at like, you know, ripping off the green eye shades of geeky numbers and then putting flesh, like human flesh on the, on these numbers, because a budget is a bunch of numbers, but what does it actually mean? And how does it affect humans? And Kasich was brilliant at that. And he's one of my best teachers of how to humanize and speak in plain English. He's, he's an amazing communicator. I, I love both those, those tactics, uh, plain language and speaking in plain English. Um, and we see this a lot now with, uh, especially in, in government, um, health communications. Uh, we see this a lot. I think it's called like a plain, the plain language movement where we're seeing actually more and more professionals training their staff, uh, for, and how to write in uh, very plainly language, the structure, sentence structure, whatnot. And, th and the whole idea is you want your audience to understand what you're, what you're, what you're trying to say. You want them to be able to take action. You don't want them to be confused. You don't, you don't have to pick up the phone or email and call for clarity on something. Um, and, and I love the, the topic of, uh, the humanizing. And so, uh, here in DC, as you very well know, there are a lot of trade associations, a lot of think tanks. And so we put out a lot of white papers and research reports and, and then we will issue communications, uh, that summarize, uh, that try to draw attention to these, these things. And, and I think that one of the things we always miss sometimes is like, okay, Where's the human? How do you can you can you humanize that's that that story? Can you humanize that report? Like for mm -hmm. example, I work in real estate development. I remember I worked at this nonprofit association. We had a report 
we always try to find um, members in the association who could help illustrate that and tell that and you know and say, yeah, this is a this is really an issue with us, and this is how it's impacting us, or find the citizens uh, in the community who are impacted by a major uh, a topic in the community around real estate development or urban planning or whatnot. And so we were able, and so that's what we always look for. And that's really hard sometimes for us to do. And so, but it, but like I said, when you learn how to do that, when you know to go there first, it works, uh, it works in, in a beautiful way. Right. Um, yeah. I, I do want to ask. Very well put. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and, and so, yeah, I think uh, those are, I think those are two great tactics. Uh I do want to ask you before we uh, get into the book, uh, your new book. I want to ask you a couple a couple questions about how you how you influence or how do you get advocates on your side, both inside inside an organization and outside an organization? Because I think sometimes we come into for whether you're in communications or you're another profession, you come into an, uh, a, a new job and you you want to you want to make big changes. Um, so, but you only get us far as the people who are on your side uh, for something. And so, and so I w- and you've had great success over, over ne- uh, nearly 40 years. And so what's the trick and what, what have you figured out that works well and what doesn't? You know, I think empathy is really important is trying to put yourself you know, in the shoes of the different audiences. I mean, if you come into an organization, you know, the people around you or your colleagues you know, if you're if you can think like them, you know, what are their what excites them, what scares them, uh, what what motivates them, and the like. You know, I think having empathy is like really really important, uh, especially for the top leaders. You know, they have to demonstrate direction. You know, they hopefully have purpose, but their ability to then communicate that to all these audiences is like just central to their success, but you have to win over the staff first. And, uh, and once you've done that through clarity of message, through empathy and through repetition, I mean, I think consistency of message is really important too. Uh, you, you're then really capable of reaching out to other audiences and really understanding where they come from. So, for example, uh, when we were at Carlisle, Carlisle bought things, made them better, and sold them. That's at its core. That's what private equity is. So we dealt a lot with the, the portfolio companies and their staffs. So they were you know, several layers removed from Carlisle. But every time we were either going to buy a company or sell a company, I said, the first thing we need to do is make sure we're communicating with the employees at those companies. And then of course you have to communicate with other audiences as well. But so when empathy is also kind of closely linked to just respect, when you, if you're a leader and you're communicating like over the heads of the people you should be communicating to first, those people aren't going to respect you and because they're going to feel disrespected and so if we're going to buy a company, I, I can't issue a news release first. I need to tell the employees that, hey, this is who Carlisle is. We're partnering with your management. This is our vision for your company. You are central to that vision. You know, and that's how you get buy-in is, is with that respect, with that empathy and the like. 
uh, and then and then you know, so you have clarity and you have consistency. I always say that consistency part because if you are not consistent in your messaging over time, then you know because there's turnover among the employees, and again people are busy, so you you need that reinforcement so they understand kind of who you are, what your vision is, what are the steps that we're taking to get there, and. Uh, that shows respect for them. It's a great way to, to build buy-in as well. So that that's generally how I think. Great way of putting it. So uh, speaking of uh, getting success, getting buy-in from uh, in the, in the, uh, individuals we encounter, whether in the workplace, inside or outside, let's jump right into your book. And so um, uh, your new book, Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant. So um, I have my copy here. Woohoo! There you are. <laughs> so I, and so it features um, successful uh, leaders and investors. But what's unique, what's great about it is it, it provides this blueprint for how to uh, how you. I think you you refer to how to create a life of purpose, happiness, and success. Um, and so every before we get into to kind of like the, some a few of the high level points in the book, I wanted to ask you, why did you write the book? You know, success is a, a fascinating subject to me, and uh, I believe it is absolute and not relative. So relative success is you have a big house and my house is small, therefore you're successful and I'm not. And that, that is not what I'm about at all. I think trying to keep up with the, the so-called Joneses who live next door, it's either someone's prettier than you or wealthier than you or happier than you. If that's how you live your life, you're not going to be happy. I don't think you're going to be successful. My father always said to me, do your best, your best. And that at its core, that's what this book is about, is about ways of thinking and behaving to help you be your best. It's not how to be a billionaire. I mean, if that's your objective, God bless you and good for you. I'm a capitalist. But it, but it's not a recipe or roadmap for how to be a billionaire. So the reason I wrote the book is that I have been so inspired by all these big wigs that I've worked for in my career. There are, there are 15 people featured, one of whom is a parking lot attendant who's not wealthy, powerful, or famous, but his lesson was about choosing to be happy and it, and he earned his way into this book. But the other 14 people were the some of the most successful people in their professions in the world. You know, we've got four billionaires. We have Lou Gerstner, who was the head of IBM, saved that from, from collapse in the 1990s. Uh, Glenn Youngkin, uh, who was this co-CEO of Carlisle, and he's now the governor of Virginia. We have John Kasich and Arthur Levin and Mitch Daniels and Adina Friedman. She is the CEO and chair of NASDAQ. So firsthand experience I have with each of these people, which is why this book is different from other books you'll find in kind of the business advice section at the you know, at Amazon or the Barnes and Noble, that most of those books were written by billionaires who say, this is how I did it. Or they were written by Harvard Business School professors who say, I interviewed 10 billionaires and this is how they did it. And those books are fine, but there's no book out there for like a reasonably normal human. Uh, my kids might disagree with that characterization, but I'm reasonably normal. And I actually worked with everyone in this, 
and I observed firsthand how they became successful. So I kind of pluck out and I gather up these 50 lessons on innovation and accomplishment and um, problem solving. And, and importantly, it's not just like luck hard. It's things like building bridges with people who don't agree with you, uh, being humble, thinking of others, like generosity and philanthropy, and that are kind of core parts of a rounded human. If all you are is make money and you're really great at that, but then you just hoard your money, you know, I don't want to be like that. I want to be around people who are driven, but then realize that the obligation and duty they have to give back. And in the four billionaires I know and have worked with are, are all about drive and accomplishment and then literally flipping it and giving the money to charity and other worthy causes. And that is really inspiring. So I wanted to capture these things and say, if I could benefit from it, and they've had a material impact in the way I think and behave, literally every day, these lessons are like how I think and behave now. And I think other people could benefit from it too. And importantly, this stuff is all um, kind of basic stuff. It, it mostly requires having drive, having a, a, a modest ego, and being humble, and then being disciplined. It's not like I say, hey, Robert, if you could run the Mar Boston Marathon in three hours, then you could do these lessons. Like and most people go, oh my gosh, I can't run the Boston Marathon in three hours. But that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if you are, if you are humble, these things will just seep into your brain and have like a material impact on the way you think and behave day in and day out. It's, it's really powerful. I was wondering if you could also, um, on still on the topic of the book, if you can shut, tell us a little bit about, give us a, a, sneak, a sneak peek in, inside the book, uh, I, maybe uh, shut some light on a, a few other lessons. And I think I told you this when I when I talked to you a week ago. What I liked about the book, it wasn't just, a, um, it wasn't didn't just list what you should be doing, what you should practice, what you should adopt, it, but also it gave a list of what you should not be doing. And I think sometimes as humans, uh, uh, we, we, we sometimes we respond better when we were told, no, don't do this. And so I, I myself, I'm one of those people. Like I, I, for me, it's easier to, to scratch something off my list of habits versus adopting and adding something. So I was wondering if you could yeah. talk a little bit about it. Just give us a few examples. Yeah, so in the things you shouldn't do category uh here there are a couple don't be arbitrary don't be mean uh don't trash talk people uh don't seek unanimity at all costs which is a really important one and um this is super important also don't confuse movement with progress uh don't bow down to the committee don't let emotion rule you uh and don't hold on longer than necessary. And uh, so these are really important lessons also. And I don't attribute them to any individual boss or person I've been around, um, but they are things I observed and I say, wow, I don't, I don't want to be like that. And, and um, th so those are kind of 10 bonus things or things you shouldn't do, you know, the other 50 are these like, go, go, go. These are the things you should do. Um, 
And I could, I'm happy to share a couple of those if you would like. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, this is kind of two part one from Adina Friedman. This, this is an amazing story that the world does not know about. So Adina is one of the only CEOs of a publicly traded company in America today. Uh, and it's the NASDAQ. It's the, so it's the stock market exchange and they do a lot more than just uh, stock market trading. And um, so, but Adina used to be this chief financial officer of Carlisle. Uh, and, and this lesson is about being joyful and being confident. And they're kind of opposite sides of the same coin in this example, where uh, one quarter, and this is around 10 years ago at this point, Carlisle's earnings were going to be mediocre. Carlisle is a public company. And so Adina gets to the earnings call and, and with a box. And I say, hey, what's in the box? And she, it's a bunch of white t-shirts with these big happy faces on them. And she said, well, everyone's kind of in a, a glum mood. But if they all wear the happy face t-shirts and the person across from them is wearing a happy face t-shirt, when you see that person, you'll actually have be a little happier. And, and, and the tone of your voice and your, you'll have a lilt, a little uplift that will, uh, you'll be a little more optimistic when you're reading the script and answering analyst questions. And I said, wow, that's a great idea. I'm, if I put my t-shirt on, she puts her t-shirt on. And, and we were the only two in the room. But then, you know, the all the big wigs, the even bigger wigs walk in, the three founders, all billionaires, the, the president, um, the head of investor relations, all these people walk in and they say, uh, what's up with the t-shirts? And she explains it and she starts handing them out and no one would wear it. They all just rejected it. And that moment was a pivotal moment. And in life, and I'm sure this happened with you and your listeners as well, there are these key moments. They're not necessarily these grand things, but these very small, subtle things that you must pay attention to. So the reason I love this lesson is because she was joyful in a corporate setting, which is just riddled with peer pressure and standards and, of, and propriety and all that kind of stuff, which is generally fine. Um, she, had, she brought in her, her spirit, her joyful spirit. I am going to do this t-shirt thing and I think it'll be fun. What the heck? Let's go for it. It might do some good. But then when she, when they said, talk to the hand, you know, a lot of people would have crumbled and they would have taken the shirt off and they would have kind of slumped over and said, oh, that was stupid. I'm not going to do that again. But she didn't do that. She kept the shirt on and she just kept going. And that is indicative of a spirit. You know, it's a way of thinking and behaving that you're confident you bring, you bring yourself. She brought joy to the, the circumstance. And then when she was faced with and a like serious peer pressure, she did not crumble. And we all know that peer pressure is, is it can be a really tough thing. So that has very much inspired me. I just love it so much. Um, and I'm going to give you an example of, uh, from Bill Conway. So, um, so he's that philanthropist guy. So Bill would roam the halls of Carlisle, giving out gift cards, uh, to Dunkin' Donuts and Carlisle owned Dunkin' Donuts at the time. And he'd, he'd literally knock on your door and say, all right, here's a $10 gift card to Dunkin' Donuts. If you promise to give this to a homeless person, I will give you a stack of them. Only if you promise, though. You can't go and get donuts or latte for yourself. And like, think about it. This is a billionaire who's uh, managing, at that point, you know, $300 billion, roaming the halls, giving out gift cards, and inspiring people to think about someone other than themselves, and especially a person who's really down on their luck when he, he could have been just making more money. And you know, that's a story no one knows either. And 
So I think the impact that these kind of things can have on a reader, certainly on me, is A, getting you to think of someone other than yourself. But, you know, we've been told homeless people are dangerous or dirty or scary. And you know what? And this gets back to the humanizing point. You know, when you actually go to a homeless person who's begging on the street corner and say, hi, what is your name? They will tell you their name. So now they went from this totally you know, nameless, faithless person. They, they have a name. And Bill met this man named Lorenzo. He used to walk by him every day. And he finally said, what's your name? And Lorenzo said, I'm, I'm Lorenzo. And Bill said, I'm Bill. And then B Bill gave him uh, shoes and he gave him gift cards. And then eventually he gave $10 million to the, an organization that helps Lorenzo. And so this book is, is about really trying to become a whole person. Yes, you must be strategic and work hard and be relentless and all that kind of stuff. But if we don't have the humanity and thinking of others and building bridges to people who don't think like us, we're doomed. I mean, look what's happening in Congress now. They can't get anything done because they hate each other and they're not humanizing. I mean, I would love to see uh, people from opposite sides just go have coffee with each other. Don't talk about work. Talk about their kids. Talk about their hobbies. I mean, when Arthur Levitt, when he was SEC chairman, so here he is, this kind of patrician, you know, blue blood Democrat, has to deal with Phil Graham, a good old boy Texan, who was the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, who had great control over Arthur's life. Arthur went to visit him, looks at his desk, sees a photo of a Labrador retriever and says, hey, is that your dog? And Graham says, yeah. And, and Arthur said, I love labs. I've had them my whole life. They're so important to me. They spent half an hour talking about dogs in every meeting before they would talk about the budget or the latest regulatory initiative. They would talk about their dogs. Arthur became a mentor to Phil's son. 30 years have gone by. They are close to this day. And that's what we need. We need this humanizing factor. I mean, I could go on and on with uh, you know, about being strategic and things like that. And those lessons are in here. Like no one works harder than David Rubenstein. No one, literally. And I've learned a lot from that. And it's, and it's inspired me. But to see Bill Conway giving out gift cards to, to help homeless people, like that's really powerful. Definitely, that has that has to be has to be quite a sight, right? See, and so, and I love what what you were saying uh, about um, uh, about. I mean, I've seen we've seen that theme throughout this entire conversation about humanizing um, individuals and how that kind of helps us with our day to day work. And I, I know that um, us Americans, a lot of times, we we have this. We're known for we, we kick up. We started meeting with a you know a. We spend a few minutes with pleasantries, you know, how was your weekend? How, any plans? Right. And so, and I think, you know, sometimes we kind of like laugh. Oh, yeah, we do that. But like, I think to your saying, to your point, that stuff's important. You know, I think like you get to know people and, and really kind of forming those bridges, you know, find that common ground, whatever it is. And so um, it's important. So just kind of jumping right into business, you know, it's, it's important not to, not to always be, you know, just get, get down the brass tacks. And get, it's important that, that I have those those uh, human the human moments right um throughout um yeah. what and oh, throughout yeah. all no, over very well put lives. yeah yeah so uh, totally. we're we're most definitely so we're we're almost at time and so i wanted to give you uh really quickly i um before we uh wrap up i wanted to ask you um 
with uh, with this podcast, many times we uh, the chief influencers that come on to the podcast, they share uh, a little bit, not just how they inspire others, but also how they get their own inspiration. And so I was hoping if you could share an example or two of how you you find inspiration, uh, maybe within the sector, uh, within the industry or you know, um, outside, maybe um, uh, in your day to day life. Yeah, I think being inspired is really important. And uh, I'm going to throw out a very unusual name for someone who inspires me. And he's he's been dead for 200 years, and his name is Beethoven. And you might say, why are you inspired by some dead German composer? And I'd say, well, uh, he, I believe, is the greatest you know, musician composer who's ever lived. And, and many people may not know that he was fully deaf, like the latter third of his career. He never found true love. He had a lot of family problems and like fights with his relatives. And he also had these like terrible gastrointestinal problems and, and nonetheless produced these majestic works. Uh, including the Fifth Symphony, the Ninth Symphony, the Moonlight Sonata. And actually, my my next project is writing a screenplay about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. How could a deaf person write the greatest piece of music ever? And um, so I am just continuously inspired by Beethoven that when when you confront things that seem uh, insurmountable or, or you have an what seems like an intractable problem, you know, you, there are ways, if you can't go through it, you might be able to go over it or around it or under it. And, uh, and to be able to try to find the, the, like dig deep into your, your soul to find energy and creativity, um, or person, you know, perseverance or humility to try to just overcome whatever you're dealing with. And so he will always be an inspiration to me. I have this huge bust of Beethoven in my living room and my kids have always kind of made fun of it. And I say, well, who inspires you? If, if, if it's not Beethoven, you, you, should, you must find people who inspire you, who, who kind of lift you up to be your best, kind of which gets back to the whole book thing is, you know, we want to be our respective best selves. And uh, Beethoven has helped me do that. That's fantastic. So uh, I want to thank you, Chris, for joining us today. Uh, and um, before before we go, where can where can our listeners find you? Where can they find your book? So they can find my book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's called Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant. And they can find me at chrisulman.com, C-H-R-I-S-U-L-L-M-A-N.com. Thank you, Chris, for joining us today. Uh, it was a pleasure having you, and congratulations on being named a Chief Influencer. Robert, thank you so much. It's, it's quite an honor, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Chief Influencer, a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board. If you know a leader who should be featured as a Chief Influencer, please nominate them at chiefinfluencer.org. For show notes and more, visit us at chiefinfluencer.org or follow Chief Influencer on LinkedIn. Until next time.